three. We have been going through this series in First Corinthians. We spent quite a bit of time uh, in the last few weeks in chapter three specifically. And so I want us to look at this final portion of verses in chapter three. Uh, and as I've been doing each week, I've been reading these to you uh, from a paraphrase just because I want you to get the idea of what uh, Paul is saying in a more simplistic way, I guess, before we dive in. So if you guys have verses 16 to 23, uh, I'll read those and we'll, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Don't you realize that all of you together are the house of God and that the Spirit of God lives among you in his house? If anyone defiles and spoils God's home, God will destroy him. For God's home is holy and clean and you are that home. Stop fooling yourselves if you count yourself above average in intelligence as judged by this world's standards. You had better put this all aside and be a fool rather than let it hold you back from the true wisdom from above. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. As it says in the book of Job, God uses man's own brilliance to trap him. He stumbles over his own wisdom and falls. And again, in the book of Psalms, we are told that the Lord knows full well how the human mind reasons and how foolish and futile it is. So don't be proud of following the wise men of this world, for God has already given you everything you need. He has given you Paul and Apollos and Peter as your helpers. He has given you the whole world to use, and life and even death are your servants. He has given you all of the present and all of the future. All are yours. And you belong to Christ, and Christ is God's. Father, we come to you again today thankful for your word, thankful for this church, thankful for what we've already felt and experienced here today. Lord, it's my prayer that you will continue to move in our lives as the Spirit searches us today. Lord, I pray that we will understand what Paul is telling us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that we are the dwelling place of God. What an amazing thought. And that if you're outside of Christ, that he is willing to come into your life, come into your heart and cleanse you, forgive you, and abide with you forever. What a wonderful privilege that is, Lord. May we never take that for granted, and may we never do anything that would defile the temple of God today. So help us, Lord, to grow from this and learn from this and apply it, and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've looked at some things that Paul has been talking about in the church in Corinth. He, he described the church, and we're only three chapters in, but we've already probably seen that this church had a lot of issues. And as we keep going through the letter, we're going to find out it has more issues uh, to deal with. And so he describes the church, and then he starts to define things. He's been telling us, like, what is this carnality? What is this divisiveness? What is this? Is it people are picking sides, and people are using worldly philosophy, and people are focused on the wrong things. And, you know, just a lot of stuff that we still struggle with today, if we're honest. This wasn't just a back-then problem. This is a people problem, and so that's universal, right? And so he's defining it. And then last week we talked about the fact that there's a coming judgment. Uh, there's a coming judgment for lost people that they're going to stand before the great white throne and give an account of their lives and be condemned because without Christ you're condemned already. But the judgment that we looked at is not for lost people. It's for believers, and it doesn't have anything to do with our salvation. It has everything to do with how we lived our life for the Lord Jesus, both in the things we shouldn't have done and the things we should have done, right? And so we spent some time last week talking about that, and I won't go back over all that again. But now I want us to look at today, Paul's going to demonstrate to us who we really are. Like, if you ever have an identity crisis, if you're trying to figure out who am I really at the core of things, because we let, 
we let so many things define us that don't matter. Our looks, social status, how many followers we have on Twitter and Facebook, those things don't matter. They don't make you who you are. Your job doesn't make you who you are. Your family doesn't really even make you who you are. Your relationship to Christ is what defines you because Christ gives purpose, right? I mean, people and jobs and money and all that stuff, it's nice and it has its place, but those things come and they go and they can get us on the mountaintop one minute and they can cause us to be in the valley in the next. Christ is consistent. My relationship with Jesus has never needed any more and it's never been any less than what I've needed in life. He is a constant source of strength and hope and help and, and I hope that you understand that. That doesn't mean that we don't get down, but that's not a failure of him. That's a flaw in us, right? And so you're going to feel those things as Christians. I'm not saying that once you come to Christ, you'll never have those problems. You'll still have them as long as you walk this life. But that's a deficiency in us, not him. And so Paul is going to show us that. And I want you to see in verse 16, we'll jump back in to uh, the text today. He says, do you not know? That is, that is a language in the Greek that's a rebuke. So he's not asking them a question. He's basically saying, hey, you really don't know this? Like, by now? Remember we told, we told you a few weeks ago that, that they've been Christians for a while. Like, this, these aren't brand new Christians, but they're acting like brand new Christians. And they should have been more mature than they are. And the reason they weren't mature is because they weren't growing in the Word. They weren't, they weren't studying the deep things. They didn't want the deep things. They just wanted to brag and boast on the gifts and different things like that and had a little bit of pride in themselves. And so they weren't growing. They, they, weren't, they weren't maturing. They were still babies. And so Paul's saying, do you not know? Like, really? I got to go over this again? You know? That, that's kind of the idea, if, if I could put it in a more modern terms. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? So there's two words in the Greek for temple, and I think it's important to kind of distinguish those. The one word would have meant like the complex itself. So when Jesus walked by and the disciples said, man, look at those buildings and look at all this and look at all that. That's one word, but that's not the word that Paul is using here. There's another word that was more intimate, if you will. It, it might have been the word that we would have used if you understand or know anything about the temple in the Old Testament, the holiest of holies, like the inner sanctuary, the place where God would meet with the high priest and atone for sacrifice and for sins. That was the place where God's presence was really seen and known and felt and worshipped. And that is the word that Paul is using when he describes us as being the temple of God, the meeting place, the holiest of holies. That is the temple that our bodies are and the Spirit of God dwells in us. Now, I want you to see something else, and I think these are important things to just file away. If you take notes, write these down, because I think sometimes we can get confused by wording and if, if we don't clarify it. So he says, do you not know that you are? You see those words, you are, that's in the plural, and why that matters is, remember last week if you were with us, we kind of kept, we went back and forth. Paul will at one minute be talking about individuals and then he'll jump into speaking of the church as a whole because Christians are the church. We hear that in our culture today all the time. We are the church. We don't need a building. We are the church. I'm not saying there's no truth to that. I think it's incomplete, right? We still need a place to gather. We're still called to gather together. You don't just stay home and say, well, I am the church by myself. No, you're sitting at home by yourself. You have to come together as a group to be the body of Christ. When one of you are missing, the body doesn't function like it should. Paul, we're going to look at that when we get to chapter 12. But regardless, as individuals, we make up the whole. 
So Paul goes back and forth between speaking to an individual, speaking to the church as a group. Right now he's talking to the church again as a group. He had spoken about the judgment seat last week, and individually, each one of us as Christians are going to stand individually. When Melody stands before the judgment seat, George isn't going to be there to give an account for Melody. It's just going to be her and God. It's a single individual thing. But this now has reverted back to the church. So he says, church, believers, you are God's temple. He dwells within us. We sing sometimes, and other churches sing songs, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Well, he's already here. He came with, he came with you this morning. He, got with, he was with you when you got up, when you brushed your teeth, when you ate breakfast, when you drove in here. Uh, he was with you the whole time. So we don't have to invite him. He shows up because he's with us, right? So the church is a group. The very word means a called-out assembly. It's hard to assemble by yourself, right? So the assembly of God, the church is the ecclesia, and we should come together to worship. And that's one thing that I think our culture today has bought into that's just foolishness. It's silly, and that is the fact that I can be a Christian, but I don't need to go to church. The Bible knows no such thing. Like, you can say that, but you have absolutely no scripture, no Bible to back that up. Um, quite frankly, you, there's quite the opposite to be said. You know, you, God ordained the church, and this is a whole other message for another time, but my point is you cannot be a Christian and separate yourself from coming together collectively for worship. There's just no wiggle room around that. The, the Bible doesn't allow you to have that. And so, you know, I think the problem is, we have a we have a commitment we have commitment issues in our society today we have loyalty and faith and faithfulness and dedication issues at least at least to some things i think we don't have a problem dedicating and, and committing ourselves to what we want but i think sometimes god wants us to do things and we say well that's optional i'm not quite sure that i that i have to do that and I think that's a sad situation with a lot of folks in church, not just this church, any church, is that you have no real commitment to the church. You, you come, but you're not connected. And there's a difference. Like, make no bones about it. We are grateful for every person that comes to church. But my desire as a pastor is more for you than just to attend. I want you to become a part of the body to use your gifts and skills and abilities to serve the Lord Jesus here so that you can be a part of this church in the sense that you are helping us make disciples, helping us reach the lost, helping us fulfill those kingdom mandates. That's the goal of being a part of the church. It's not just to show up and be a spectator. It's to show up and be a participant, right? And so Paul is saying that we need to be connected because the Spirit of God lives within us, and he's told us that there is coming a day of judgment where we are going to give an account for how we lived our lives. As individuals, yes, but also how we interacted corporately as the body, as, chi as Christ's church. The world is looking at the church. What do they see? What do they see from us? Not their opinion, but in actuality, because there, there's a lot of critique that's unwarranted, and then there's some that's justified, right? And so what does the world see when it looks at Caruso Baptist Church? What is the image that we are showing to the world on behalf of Christ. I think about the fact that we are unwilling to commit, and I thought about, again, that judgment seat. And can you imagine, like Phyllis saying, the ultimate horrible side of things to stand before God and find out that your name wasn't even there? How awful that would be. But if it is there, and yet you're standing before him, and, 
and, and God is asking you about your life. And imagine that he has gifted you with wisdom and you had the ability to teach and you had the ability to do things. And he says, he says to you, you know, what, what did you do with your gift? And you say, well, I know there was an opening on Wednesday nights and the church needed somebody to teach, but doggone it, I had bowling league on Wednesdays and I just couldn't be there, you know? I think about the fact, do you think that in that moment at the judgment seat of Christ that that's going to be a valid reason? You'll say, well, that, I understand, you know, bowling's, bowling's important and you had to be there. I'm not saying that things don't come up and that, that you can't ever have any kind of fun. I'm saying that we have a commitment problem to the things of God sometimes and not so much to the things of the world. Same thing with the women, you know. If, ladies, if you have gifts and there's opportunities, use those. Don't be afraid to commit because you are going to give an account. The things God has given you are gifts. Use them for him. He is the dwelling place. We are the dwelling place of God. In verse 16 and 17, look at that again, what he says there to us. He says, you are the temple. and God dwells in you. And if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. That's strong, strong language. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. God takes this thing very serious because God is holy. Too many churches have forgotten to talk about that anymore. God is holy. God has a standard. You don't get saved and then God say, good luck, do the best you can. I'll see you in 30, 40, 50 years when you come up here in the glory. God still has a standard for his people. He doesn't just save us and then say, do what you want. And we live in a world today where believers want to get as close to that line without crossing it. They want to tiptoe that thing and say, well, I didn't sin, but boy, I sure got close. That's no way that we ought to live our lives. We ought to avoid... Holiness means to be separate, set apart. Don't get as close as you can. Stay as far away as you can. Don't even get near those things because I can promise you you'll get close enough that you'll fall in. Or a little bit will get splashed on you, if nothing else. But one way or another, you get too close, and only bad is going to come of it. I've seen it over and over and over again. And Paul says, well, look at this in a few weeks. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. This is one of the hardest things, I think, for any of us to get through our heads, is that we're not our own. You have liberty and you have freedom in Christ. But you can't just do what you want. Every decision that you make, every place that you go, every thought that you think ought to be funneled through this book. Before you do it, say it, go there. You just should. We all should. Because God wants us to live different. And the only way we're going to be different is for this book to transform us. That's what the Bible says. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And your mind is renewed through the Word of God. That's the only way it happens. You read this book, you understand what it says, you surrender yourself to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, and He enables you to live this thing out. That's how it works. And anytime you in pride and rebellion say, uh-uh, I'm not doing that, you are in opposition to God. You are defiling the temple. We often, you know, we got new carpet and stuff, and we say... Don't bring any drinks in here. Don't bring any food in here because we don't want to mess up the room. But then we'll go out and mess ourselves up and not think anything about it. I'd rather you come in here with a big old pot of chili and dump it all over the ground than go out there and act like a fool. I'm being honest. Because 
we can replace the carpet, but we can't fix your testimony once you've ruined it. I watch every week men of God destroy their churches and their testimonies by doing stuff. Just this week, the International House of Prayer, I can't think of the guy, Mike Beckle, Bickle, was, you know what I'm talking about, I think, probably caught in a big scandal. I'm not saying he's guilty. Nobody knows yet for sure, but there is another blight on the church of Christ by somebody that, I hope it's, I hope it's false, I, I pray it is, but even if that one's false, there's way too many that haven't been, and it destroys the testimony of the people of God. Not just, not just the one that did it, like the one that did it's going to give the account for it, but it makes it hard on good churches. It makes it hard on good pastors. It makes it hard on good, any, anything good in a church, they don't see that. They just see the bad. Well, you see, there you go. Them Christians, they act like they're holier than thou. Look at that guy. He went out and had affairs on all those, with all those women, you know? Yeah, we're not justifying that. He needs to give an account for it. He needs to be removed from the pastorate and everything else that needs to happen. There's consequences to sin, for sure. But that doesn't mean that every other Christian is bad, but that's how the world looks at it. We've got to be careful about our testimonies, and we've got to guard that above all things. And when we decide to do things our ways, guys, as Christians, God is going to chastise you. You can't be a Christian and think that God is going to be okay with you living in sin. And a lot of times I hear people say, man, boy, oh boy, the devil has just been on me lately. Maybe God's been on you. You ever think about that? Maybe you attributing all this trouble to, to Satan, and it's God trying to get your attention. Maybe you're, you've done some things that you haven't repented of, and God is the one on your heels. Don't blame the devil if you've got things in your life that are wrong. You need to get right with God. And I looked at this text, and I, I thought about another text in 1 Corinthians 8, verses 9 through 13. I think we have these verses up there, and I just want us to think about this, because when God described the temple in the Old Testament, he was super specific. Like we kid all the time about you get into the first of the year, you start your Bible reading plan, I'm going to read my Bible all the way through, right? And we get to Leviticus or Numbers, and we're like, well, that's enough of that. Too many big names and too many laws and too much confusion, I'm done. And, you know, but when you read through that stuff, like there's chapter after chapter after chapter just on the dimensions of the temple and the, the things that went into the temple. Why was God so specific? Because God's holy. He doesn't want something just thrown together. He was very specific, and he created you and set you apart for a specific purpose. And he wants you to be a vessel fit for him to dwell in. He, he makes us fit through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying we work ourselves to a frenzy to make ourselves presentable. But once he saves us, we ought to live up to that calling to the best of our abilities. We ought to think about that every single day. How are we living? How am I acting? How am I behaving for the glory of God? And so listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 13. This is from the New Living Translation just because I wanted to bring it out again and a little easier to understand. He says, you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your, quote-unquote, superior knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that has been offered to an idol? So because of your superior knowledge, a weak believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. And when you sin against other believers by encouraging them to do something they believe is wrong, you are sinning against Christ. So if what I eat, listen to this, so if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I will never eat meat again as long as I live. 
for I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. In a society today that says, I don't care about anybody else but me. My job is to not worry about you, I just worry about me. Paul says something extremely opposite for us as believers. Steak lovers in the house today? Pork chops? Fried chicken? Come on now, you're Baptists, some of you are. We're working on some of you. But you still like to eat. Paul said, listen, the best steak, best pork chops, fried chicken at the potluck, if it's going to cause my brother or sister to stumble, I'll become a vegan for the rest of my life. That's a pretty big step, isn't it? To be willing to give up your favorite food just for somebody else. Most of us would say, well, if he's too so weak in the faith that he can't watch me eat my steak, he ought to go in the other room. I'm going to enjoy my steak with some extra A1 on it, matter of fact. That's how we would behave, wouldn't we? But Paul says, I am so concerned about my brother. I'm so concerned about my sister's relationship with Jesus Christ that any worldly thing I will give up if it will help them in their walk. Man, that's sacrifice. That's surrender. I, listen, I am in no way, shape, or form saying that I'm standing before you today and saying I could do that and you need to get on the same level as me. I would struggle with that tremendously, still do. But I think we need to acknowledge that that's the standard and we need to stop excusing ourselves from saying I don't care about anybody else, it's just me, me, me. It's not me, me, me. We live for Jesus Christ and for others and ourselves last. And sometimes we've got to get ourselves off the pedestals and say other people matter. Other people matter more than me. Yes, I have liberty to do things. Yes, I have freedom to do things. But I'm going to care enough about other people to set aside my wants and preferences and opinions and serve other people. That's hard. It is. Because we're, we're all spoiled. Every one of us in this room are spoiled. This country and all its blessings have spoiled us. And I thank God for that. I thank God for the chairs and air conditioning and the lights and all the, all the things we take for granted. But it has spoiled us in a lot of ways. And I think about, I thought about Jackson. Um, I thought about him this week. Brian, I hope you don't mind. I, I talk about Jackson for a minute. Most of you that know, everybody knows Jackson, loves Jackson. Jackson's phenomenal. But why I bring him up is this. If, if we knew... I believe if we knew that there was something about Jackson that we could do that would upset him or hurt him or cause him distress, let's say there was a certain color that bothered him, or let's say that loud noises bothered him, we have the liberty to come in here and wear any color shirts you want to wear, hoot and holler and make all kinds of noise. But if I said, church, we need to not wear this color, we need to not yell today because it upsets Jackson, I think every one of you would be willing to say, I love Jackson enough that I won't do that for his good. If we would do that for him, why wouldn't we do it for other people? Why wouldn't we think about things that might offend or hurt someone else? Maybe they're just struggling in their walk and they're weak and they don't have enough faith. I don't know what the situation is, but we've got to care about one another enough. That's what Paul says. Let me read Romans 14, 19 through 21. Listen, he's, he kind of makes the same point again. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. Remember, we're one body here. The church is God's people. The goal is to get everyone to be encouraged and strengthened, the weaker to come on up, the strong to have an understanding, to not run off ahead and leave the weaker behind. For mutual edification, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. So he's going back to the food issue again. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that will cause your brother or sister to fall. 
That is the supreme example of caring about people. And that's why I keep encouraging you, get to know your neighbors, serve with one another, build relationships. We're not always going to be super close with everybody in the church, but if we have a mutual respect and we care more about one another to build up this body, it will only strengthen God's church because our first focus will not be us any longer. It will be what can I do to help someone else? What can I do to bring glory to God through honoring someone else? And man, think about that. You are laying up then treasure in heaven for yourself. And when you go to that judgment seat and God says, let's take a look at your life, he's going to be able to call up things. And remember, I remember when you did this for this person. I remember when you sacrificed for that person. In the time, it was hard. It was hard to give up that steak, Paul, wasn't it? And just eat lettuce. But here you are now, standing at the judgment seat of Christ and receiving crowns and receiving blessings and receiving honor for the way you lived your Christian life. It's not going to be easy here, but it will be worth it there. And that's the difference, guys. That's why we've got to keep our eyes on these things. So Paul's been looking at division, and just to bring this thing all home real quick, I want us to look at the solutions. Paul gives them some solutions. He spent the whole third chapter telling them about all their problems and why they were having these problems. Now he's going to tell them and us and any other Christians what we can look at to try to make these things not be a reality any longer, the divisions and, and the worldly wisdom and all the stuff that Corinth was going through. So here it is, number one. He says Christians need to have a biblical view of themselves. We, we, we spend a lot of time staring in the mirrors, staring at our phones, looking at ourselves with the selfies, but we need to get a good biblical look of what God sees of us, right? Not what we see, what God sees. So he says in verses 18 to 20, he says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool. That word in the Greek is where we get our English word moron. All right, seriously, that's what the word comes from. He, so let me, let me read it that way. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a moron. That doesn't mean you walk around like you have no sense. It just means that you live your life in such a way that you are so different from the world that they think that guy is weird. And we're so worried about what the world thinks about us that we don't want to be weird. So we try to act like them or just pretend that we're not all that weird. And I've told you a little bit, like the number one thing that keeps people from sharing their faith is they're afraid of what people will think about them. And I'm telling you right now, if you just utter the, we studied in Sunday school today that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Do you believe that? You are 100% a weirdo to most of the world if you say that. You just are. I mean, the basic things about our faith are going to make you weird. So you might as well stop worrying about being weird or you better find another faith to follow because Christianity and the world are never going to gel. They're never going to co be cohesive, guys. And you might as well get used to them folks out there thinking that you are a moron for what you believe because I'm telling you what, you can be a fool all your life, but you know the end of this thing. You know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I'm not saying that makes us walk around superior to them that are lost. I'm saying we understand that they're deceived, that they're lost, that they can't comprehend the seriousness of things. So don't be afraid to be foolish. And we have got to have a biblical view of ourselves. He goes on and says, For the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. The most brilliant minds, if devoid of Christ, ultimately have nothing. They can come up with all kinds of great scientific and, 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 and you know, astrology and biology and all these things. 
But at the end of, of life, none of that will matter if they don't know Christ. And so, so Paul says we need to have a good view of ourselves, a biblical view. Uh, pride and worldly wisdom and all that stuff, it's not going to do you any good when you stand before Christ. And that is why, again, guys, this book is the final and absolute authority for us. And, 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 it, and if you today cannot submit and surrender to this, you will never, ever, ever be in the will of God. Never. Never. Because ultimately, God has revealed himself through his word. And the way that you know him and the way that you obey him, if you love me, he said, keep my commandments. And his commandments are in this book. You don't obey to be saved. You obey because you are saved. And so the Christian life is built around the fact that we surrender to Christ, we surrender to his word, and then we live that out by serving him and serving others and thinking of ourselves less. That's it. And that's what Paul's trying to get. So we need that biblical view of ourselves, and then we need a biblical view of others. He says that in verse 21. He says, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. And then he goes on to name Paul and Apollos and Cephas or Peter again. What he's saying there to them and what he's saying to us is, Paul is a blessing to the church in Corinth. So is Apollos, and so is Peter. They had three men that were amazing teachers of the Word of God, examples to the flock. They were shorting themselves by just uniting themselves to one. We have so many people in this church that are so gifted and so talented. If you came in here and you said, well, there's a church full of good people, but I only listen to Ronnie. Ronnie's the only one I listen to. You are shorting yourself. You're putting Ronnie on too high of a pedestal, number one, because he's going to fail you, as any of us will. But do you see, if you just say, well, Ronnie's the only one I listen to. Pastor's the only one I listen to. God has given us a church full of people with gifts and abilities, some of which I don't have, some of which Ronnie doesn't have. Where I fall short, there are other people in the body that can pick up where I can't, you see? And so if we just unite ourselves, he's saying, if you just unite ourselves to Paul, you are living below what God has given the church. And so we don't need to divide up into groups or into people. Again, the picture is together. Collectively, we are the church, the dwelling place of God. He doesn't just dwell in one person or this person. He dwells in all of God's people. And we need all of them together. So we need a biblical view of ourselves. We need a biblical view of others. And then he says we need a biblical view of our stuff, our possessions. Look at verse 22. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, look at that last three words. All are yours. All of it. Because we are connected to Jesus and Jesus owns everything. Like people say, my house, my car, my health, my church, it ain't yours. You might assign the bank note, you might mail in the payments, but believe me, God owns all of it. It's his. And the sooner we get that through our heads, number one, the less we'll worry about worldly things and the easier it will be to let go of those things if we need to. And it will also make the giving a lot easier. If you realize that it's not yours, you can share it a lot more freely. You're not always trying to hold on to it, make sure I got enough for me and a little extra for me, right? Be generous, be giving, be kind. Don't hold on to material things. Paul says, it's already all yours because it already all belongs to Jesus and you belong to Jesus. That's what he's trying to get across to them. Like, stop fighting over stuff that don't matter. It's just possessions. And I've never seen a hearse behind, uh, 
with a, with a U-Haul behind it. Have you? Never seen that. I've done a lot of funerals. It's the person, and usually the pastor, and in a line of cars. I've never seen a U-Haul hauling that person's stuff over to the gravesite. It don't matter. It's gone because they're gone. Not forever. They're somewhere, but you get my point. And so we've got to have a biblical view of possessions. Romans eight seventeen. he says, If we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. What a beautiful picture that at the end of this life, when all our stuff is gone as believers, we are going to be caught up together to worship him forever in heaven. I'm so glad to know that the people that I love that are Christians, I will get to spend eternity with them. I may lose all the stuff in this world, but I will never lose the Christian relationships that I have with people I love. That's why it's so important to me that my family is saved, that my church family is saved, that my friends and neighbors are saved, because I want to spend eternity with them. And not everybody's going. You've got to get that through your head right now. No matter how good of a person they are, no matter how much you care about them, no matter how much you want them to be with you, without Jesus Christ, they're not going. And if you want them to go, you better share Jesus with them, because he's the only way. He is the only way. Stop worrying about being a fool. You're a moron. I already told you that. So this is the only time in church you're allowed to turn to your neighbor and say, you are a moron, all right? You can go ahead and do that. Depending on who you're sitting through next to, that might make you really happy today, right? But you can call your neighbor a moron according to the world, right? Because Jesus said so in the Word. Last thing and I'm done here. Right? You guys got way too excited about calling each other morons, all right? Verse 23. Here's the last verse and I'm done, I promise. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. We need a biblical view of who we belong to. That's the last one. We may, may we never forget who we belong to. You might come in here today and think, I, am, I just feel so unworthy. I feel so unloved. I feel so undervalued. Please read verse 23 again. You are Christ, and Christ belongs to God. You are united to the creator of the world. He knows you by name. He loves you. He gave you value. He gave you purpose. He came and gave his life on an old rugged cross and shed his blood for you. That's how much he loves you, you, today. Don't ever listen to the enemy say that you aren't worthwhile. That's why we have stupid things on ballots like issue one, is because we have the idea that some life doesn't matter. And if people just understood that all life matters because God gives it and it's in the image of God, then we wouldn't even need to have these kind of conversations. And that's the reality of, that's what it all boils down to, is we've bought into this idea that some life is more valuable than others, and not according to the Word of God. It's not. Every life, regardless of viability, regardless of age, regardless of ability, every life matters. And that's what Paul says here. He says that unity, basically, unity is strongest when Jesus is the glue. That's what he's saying. When we understand who we belong to, our unity will never be stronger because we'll have a right perspective of this. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6.17. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. D don't, just, don't just jump past that. Look at that again. The one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Wow. One spirit with him, united to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God dwells within us. We are the temple. It matters how we live. It matters how we view life. It matters how we view others, guys, because the Spirit of God lives within us. We have got to take a step back each and every day and evaluate how we're living our lives. We put ourselves up on pedestals. We put other people on pedestals. That's not how it's supposed to be. We need to humble ourselves and understand there's only one on the throne. 
keep our eyes on him and live for him and for other people. John MacArthur said this, I thought it was great. The greatest possible motive for maintaining the unity of spirit and for avoiding church division is knowing that we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God because we all belong to him. We all belong to each other. We all belong to each other. We have liberty to live a certain way in the confines of the word of God and how it affects people around us. If it violates those things, we don't have the liberty anymore. Otherwise, we're outside of the will of God. And so I thought about this, especially with the Lord's Supper today. You know, we're going to give an invitation. Phyllis and Shane are going to come in a moment, and we'll sing this song of invitation. But I know there's a lot of thoughts when you see the Lord's Supper and you think, I'm not going to, I mean, I don't know, maybe you don't think this way. I think this way every time we do it. I think, man, I'm just so unworthy. I'm not going to take it today. I know, you know, we do it quarterly. So I'm sure in the last three months you've done at least one thing that you're not proud of and you think, I acted like a fool that day and I'm not going to take the Lord's Supper because I'm unworthy. We're never worthy. Never. The only thing that makes us worthy of anything is Jesus. But I do believe that the Bible teaches us that before we take the supper we need to examine ourselves and we need to make sure that there are not things in our life that are hindering the Spirit from operating in us, right? Unconfessed sin, stuff that we need to get out and open and shine a light. And I thought about that, and I thought about trying to, trying to think of a way to bring it out. And so maybe this is silly, maybe it's not, but this is, what, this is what I had on my heart. So you remember a couple months ago we had that baptism service outside, and we had all the chairs out there, and we set out the chairs and set them out. And if you go back and look at the pictures, you can see people all over out there seated. But if we would have set this chair out there, it would have looked just like it does this morning. It would have been empty to our eyes. But there's somebody sitting in that seat every Sunday. And there's somebody that's watching everything we do in this room. And he watched everything we did out there. Maybe not so much in a real physical sense, but his name is Satan. His name is the devil. Now, he can't be everywhere at all times. He's not like God. But he has enough demons that can do that. So whether it was him or a demonic force, he sat in a chair and he watched. And he didn't like it. And you heard me say that. I said, church, any time that the, the Lord is moving in a church, in your life, in your family, you better be on guard because the enemy will come. And I take that as a good thing because I've been in a lot of churches that aren't doing anything. I've been, in a lot of, I've been around a lot of Christians that aren't doing anything. And the devil don't have to work a bit. Why would he? You're not doing anything. If the enemy is in your church active, if the enemy is in your home active, that tells me that you're doing something for the Lord or he wouldn't be fighting. And so we can roll over and we can say, well, this is bad. This is terrible. Or we can say, you're already crushed under the feet of my Savior. And you can say... I can't stop you from sitting in the seat, but I won't give you a bit of attention. And, and, and here's the problem, though, guys. He sits in the seat, and we know this now, right? But we can, we can take that thing, and we can go out to our car, and we can sit down, and he's right there. Because we didn't deal with it. We brought him along, and he's talking, and we're driving, right? And then we go in the house, 
and our wife's in there, and the kids are in there. And he sits right back down, and we're listening, and we're mad at them, and we're bickering, and we're upset. And we're taking him everywhere we go. And there comes a point in the time, guys, where we have got to say, you know what? I'm not going to deal with this anymore. I'm not. I'm just not going to deal with it. And I say all that to say this, this. This morning, if the enemy... Now, make sure it's not God that's the one that's on your heels. Make sure you haven't done things that you're getting chastised for. But if you are sick and tired of the enemy having place in your life, understand that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And say, I'm not going to give place to the devil any longer. I'm not going to listen to the lies. He tells me I'm worthless. He tells me I, I, I'm, I'm this and I, he tells me I'm that. God's word says something different. You better listen to God and not that liar. Throw it out the door and say, I'm standing on the promises of Christ. If he has got you troubled and fearful and worried about things, you got, a, you got the God of the universe who knows all things, holds all things together. Stop listening to the devil and his lies and trust the one who can control all and does control all things. Do you see the difference this morning? And so we're going to sing this song of invitation. Phyllis, Shane, you come. And I'm just asking you, if there's sin in your life, if there's struggles in your life, whatever it is, the altar is open and come and give those things up. But I want to say one more thing before I give this invitation. And this is, you all were with me up until this point. Now I'm going to lose some of you. You ready? Here it is. I'm going, to, I'm going to give it to you right now. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there at the altar you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift on the altar and go your way and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift let me tell you this you cannot serve God you cannot worship God you cannot do anything for God if your relationship with your brother and sister is not right impossible you can't bypass the church family or your physical family or anyone in life and say well I hate that person but I love Jesus it won't work that way you cannot hate people made in the image of God you cannot have an ought against someone in life and think that God is okay with that. You've got to deal with that. He says be reconciled to your brother. That doesn't mean in the sense of reconciliation where we can have a relationship. Sometimes relationships are strained and broken and they can no longer be as they were. That's not the word that he's saying there. The word is of the money changers. When they went to the temple and they exchanged money, one type of coin for another, Basically, what he's saying is, if there's a tension in the room between two people, you're going to change that. You're going to diffuse that. You're going to no longer have a disagreement or an argument with somebody. You're going to change that to unity, and the unity comes through knowing Jesus Christ. So here's my challenge to you. Before you take the supper today, before you do anything else, during this invitation, if it's about you and God, come to the altar and get it right. If it's about you and somebody else, go to them first. Then you both come to the altar and get it right. But if you really want victory in your life, if you really want God to move in your life, if you really want the freedom and the bitterness to go 
and to stop carrying that chair around and throw it out, you can't bypass this step. You might think, well, I'm going to throw the chair out the door and I'm going to come to the altar, but I'm not going to do that. Go, you might as well get to go get the chair, guys. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. There is a biblical way to deal with it, and that's how you deal with it. So they're going to sing. I'm going to pray. They're going to sing, and, and you've got to do what God is telling you to do. Father, we come to you today, and I'm thankful, Lord, so thankful for this church, so thankful for this message, and so thankful that you helped me this week with things in my life that I needed help with. God, and I pray today that you'll do that here at this church, whether someone's lost and needs Jesus, whether there's just someone struggling with some kind of relationship issue, whatever it is, that today, Lord, that would be mended, that that would be changed, and that, God, you would have glory and honor in their lives and in this church. We love you, Lord, and I thank you for what you're about to do in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand, as we